This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. We have a really special show today. Uh, Professor Siegel has been talking a lot about inflation, the Fed. We have a Fed meeting, and we have a former Fed governor on the program today to be dissecting what's happening in the economy and inflation. Um, but, Professor, let's kick it off with you with some comments. Um, what's your take on the market, the reaction to the Fed, and your current thoughts? I, I think uh, they were expecting – I think the market got really short because it said it that they might be even more aggressive. Um, and um, uh, even though it was on the aggressive side with the median expectation of three increases, which, by the way, I think that they're going to have to do more, uh, much more, but that's, that's for later. Um, I think that the market thought, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, uh, he might uh, start talking about, you know, doing half-point hikes and getting it up to two, and, and none of that happened. So we had a kind of a relief rally. Uh, on Wednesday, and then it fell apart Thursday, and then kept on down. And we are really crazy. I mean, this morning, you know, that all the tech stocks had just been sold to the ground. I think people got way too short, and then we had a snapback rally in uh, the tech, and and even meme stocks today. We have AMC up eighteen uh, percent, uh, GameStop up six percent. Um, and uh, Robinhood, which has been crushed, uh, even up one one percent right now. But I think so many people are trying to guess it that they position. But the the, bo- the bottom line is that they're not aggressive enough. Um, uh, it uh, we've been talking about that. Uh, it's silly to continue to provide uh, even for three months more open market purchases and then and then delay raising rates until March. Of course, what's going to happen is uh, what I believe is going to happen is as the inflation continues to uh, run very hot, um, uh, that uh, the Fed will have to continue its pivot and will get more and more uh, aggressive. Remember, just in the September meeting, just in the September meeting, over half the participants didn't think there was going to be one rate hike next year. Um, uh, now, now the median is uh, uh, oh, virtually three rate hikes. I mean, just in three months, uh, that is one of the sharpest uh, uh, changes that I've ever seen in the dot plot. Now, we've been saying this all the time on the show, but uh, it shows, in my opinion, how far they have been uh, behind the curve. 
Now, I, I know from your views, um, when, when you think about how much they have to raise next year, you're, you're on the more aggressive side of what you think it'll end the end of 2022. Um, do you want to outline for the listeners what your view is yeah. for that? Well, the, 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 what I'm looking at, and, and I, think, I think we get another, we get monthly readings of the money supply. Then the basic proposition has been we are increasing uh, the money supply liquidity way too fast, way too fast. Um, and uh, we'll, I think we get it on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. It's a monthly data, although you can kind of construct it a little bit from weekly uh, pieces uh, of data they get. But the fourth, I think it's the fourth Tuesday of every month, we get the previous month. And, it, it, you know, since even after the spurt of money from March through July of 2020, since July of 2020, we're talking a year and a half, we've been increasing the M2 money supply at 16%. 16.5% annualized rate, which is uh, uh, three times the rate of the previous three, 35 years. Uh, it, the only way I see of slowing down inflation is cutting the rate of growth of that liquidity. And the only way I see cutting the rate of growth of that liquidity is raising rates enough so that people are reluctant to, to take out credit. Um, uh, uh, banks have, uh, you know, uh, trillions of dollars of extra excess reserves. And so they can write it up at will. Uh, the, the, it's the question of the demand is there. If you make it more expensive, they won't. The banks won't be writing up the credit, and that will eventually slow it. Now we also are getting a bit of a fiscal slowdown in in a number of <laughs> of, of things. I mean, uh, despite the Omicron variant, there's no talk of fiscal stimulus. Um, uh, I mean, this is something that is passing through right now. I mean, according to Scott Gottlieb, who was on. Uh, CNBC. I mean, actually, that both uh, Dr. Fauci and uh, Dr. Scott uh, Gottlieb were on CNBC this morning, and uh, he, uh, Dr. Fauci said it could be a very um, three three months fast, but but uh, really spiking uh, spiking up, um, and then and then go on. Um, uh, so uh, whatever hesitancy there is in, in spending, which I do think there is some as a result of this COVID. Um, I know you and I are now beginning to know people who've gotten COVID, even though they've been fully vaccinated and even boosted. Uh, so there's a little bit of hesitancy. But um, if Gottlieb is right, and he's been the most right of any of them so far, uh, by the middle of January, late January, this will pass. And then people will say, OK, and then they'll go full scale ahead so that uh, the economy will re remain very strong next year. So, I mean, that, but the, the main thing is they got to cut the growth of liquidity growth. And I, I see no other way uh, other than to um, raise interest rates. I mean, maybe uh, when Let we me... talk to Don Cohn, he, he might have some uh, anxious to talk with him uh, in the first half of our show to see his take on, on these developments. We just introduced our guest for the, uh, for the top half, Don Cohn, senior fellow at Brookings, former Fed. For 40 years, uh, Don, with a lot of different uh, roles at the Fed, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us. Well, great to be here again. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, you heard a little bit of the professor's take. Maybe give us your read of the, the economy, what the Fed is on track to do next year. Yeah, so I think, uh, Jeremy, uh, it's been both Jeremy's. Great to talk to you both again. <laughs> I Thank think you you're right. It's been a remarkably rapid pivot by the Fed 
in terms of its perceptions of inflation risk and what it wants to do about it. And in my view, it's been a most welcome pivot. I think they were a bit behind the curve in recognizing the um, medium-term risks on inflation. They stuck to the transitory story maybe a little a little longer. Um, I do think so. Uh, I think what they what they've said is, as you said, um, they're going to phase out the purchases over the next couple of months very rapidly. Uh, and then um, raise rates. Their current expectation is the majority of the committee expects to raise rates three times next year. But I, I make a couple of comments here. One is I do, I do think it's reasonable to expect that at least a good portion, not all, but a good portion of this inflation overshoot does come from COVID-related supply disruptions. So we know that because of COVID and people's constraints on spending and traveling, they've shifted their demands more towards goods. A lot of goods come from the Far East, China and other trading partners over there, uh, as well as from Europe. And we know that COVID has been a, a major disruptor of uh, production in the Far East. Some Chinese provinces are shutting down again, I read the other day, because of concerns about Omicron. Um, and of course, the shipping, uh, the ports are all jammed up. So I don't, I, I think it's re a reasonable presumption is that as the world learns to deal with this virus, and it's been a bumpy ride, but I think the underlying presumption is that it will learn to deal over time with vaccinations and treatments and sensible behavior, then these supply constraints will ease off. And among the supply constraints are labor force participation. So Jay Powell was very clear in his press conference the other day that he was disappointed that labor force participation hadn't sprung back more quickly when uh, the extra benefits wore off when the schools reopened, when some of the child care centers reopened. So I think we have some COVID-related um, problems here that will go away and that inflation will come down next year. Now, the question is how far. The Fed has it coming down to about 2.5%, I think, uh, next year. 2.6, I guess they have, and 2.7 for core PCE, that's a little be about 3% CPI next year. Um, so that's a pretty good drop from the 6 to 7% range we've seen, 5 to 7% range we've seen over the past few months. So I, I do think some drop is in place, but whether how much, I think is the big question. But I, the com coming back to the speed of the pivot issue, uh, the fact that as Chair Powell emphasized, why did they pivot? They pivoted because of the incoming data. So he cited the CPI, he cited the labor markets, he cited the wage data. I think if you're right, Jeremy Siegel, and inflation doesn't come down and it continues to be very strong, you will see them accelerate uh, the, the rise in interest rates in order to control the inflation. So you should be encouraged that they respond very quickly to new data that tells them the old story wasn't working very well.
Don, uh, thank you for for your take. Uh, my my question is, why are it appears they completely ignore ignoring uh, the money supply data? Uh, you know my my background. I mean, I got my PhD at MIT, a Keynesian school. Uh, one could say then I taught four years at University of Chicago when I was at Milton Friedman. I've read all of that. I know the limitations of money and all that, and all and and, and all that. But I, in none of the discussion uh, I, do I hear we've got to control the M2 growth, because I, I know you must have looked at it. It is just out, uh, you know, it's out the window. I mean, the, the M2 money supply growth in 2020 exceeded a, on a one-year basis anything we had seen in U.S. history from 1870 to the present. Why Why is, is that being ignored as uh, a source of uh, the inflationary pressures. Well, you're right, Jeremy, it is being ignored. Uh, And I think the reason is that experience has shown that the money supply is not a very good predictor of future inflation, or at least hasn't been over the last couple decades. So I was on staff at the Fed in the 70s and 80s, And, of course, in the late 70s and the early 80s, the money supply was the very focus of uh, monetary policymaking from 79 through 82. But uh, as uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada said about the money supply in Canada, we didn't abandon it. It abandoned us. So we found that the Federal Reserve, that uh, money supply wasn't a very good predictor of future inflation, I think we had, and I would say, some validation of that in coming out of the global financial crisis. So, Jeremy, I went to a number in the spring of 2008, after we announced and started implementing our our quantitative easing to get out of the very deep recession that followed the crisis, I went to a number of conferences. I remember one at Stanford, Vanderbilt, Princeton, And nearly in every conference, someone challenged me much the way you did. I mean, the monetary base is growing very rapidly. The money supply is going to grow very rapidly. That's inflationary. I remember Alan Meltzer telling me it's not whether, but when. Well, 13 years later, it still wasn't inflationary. It's only, I mean, the inflation we're seeing now has nothing to do with the money supply growth we got in the 20-teens. So I think when interest rates are stuck at zero, you're in a liquidity trap, the money supply is just not a very good predictor of future inflation. I think a lot of that money has come from the QE. So the Fed is buying securities from people. The people are taking the proceeds of that and they're putting it in banks and they're putting it in money market funds. And then that gets counted in in the money supply and i think the money supply will will grow much more slowly as the fed winds down its purchases and i even then i don't think it's a very good predictor of future inflation we're having a nice test of that aren't we let let me push back on that um 
I I remember when John Taylor passed. I I remember all those people. They wanted me to sign the letter in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal about the inflationary consequences of the QE, and I refused to do so. I refused to do so. I said, you know, it's not going into M2. It's being mostly put into excess reserves of the banking system. And that, Don, is the huge difference between what is then and now. I didn't predict any inflation back then. I wasn't one of those. I said, Friedman was said, said much, M2 is much more important than monetary base. You, you're absolutely right. When you're in the so-called liquidity trap or against the zero bound, then, you know, the, the base doesn't go into, into money. But this time, it, it has gone into money because of all the fiscal, basically all the spending, the fiscal spending, the PPP plan, the tax cuts and everything else, every, just wrote checks. And it just went into everyone's checking account. That did not happen in the great financial crisis. The money supply, if you take a look at the M2, the money supply had a little bump, 2008. It's nothing. You look at it today, and it's 10 times the amount. So I I think you're wrong on saying, oh, yeah, the great, the the expansionary policy of the Fed. Uh, you know, sort of caused people not to look at money, and that is, you're you're right. And then, but they weren't looking at the right thing. Base alone, especially in a zero interest rate environment, is not going to push into money. But what we have, and what we have had over the previous eighteen months, is an explosion of the money supply. Not not just the base. The base has exploded too. But if the base the base going into money is a much more potent force than the base alone. The base alone has, as you're right, has very little effect in the zero money world. So I think um, I, I, I think they are failing to make that distinction. And I think you're absolutely right. It was a re- I would never join those people because I said they're not interpreting the data correctly. But I think the reaction to the the false alarm that the sky is falling. You're absolutely right. You know, I was at those conferences. I didn't join. I think has caused uh, now. Oh, now the money supply is of no concern to us. So uh, let me I'm, meet I'm you. Part, let, me, let, me meet you let me meet you part way, Jeremy. And that part way is I do think the money supply, this accumulation of deposits, of very liquid funds by households and businesses. I, I agree with you as at least importantly a function, not so much of monetary policy, but a fiscal policy. Correct. So the, so the government sent out checks, cut taxes, but more to send out checks to people. Some of them had to spend it to keep food coming in the house, but a lot of them didn't need those checks. And that ended up, and, and furthermore, their spending was constrained by the, shutdowns and the caution around the pandemic. So that ended up going into savings. They used it to pay down debt. They used to put it in their bank account. So I think, um, well, I wouldn't put um, a lot of weight on a specific number. I think this money supply, I agree with you, the money supply data or the money supply size is in, at least in, in importantly a measure of the excess saving that has gone on in the household sector. And that saving, so I'm thinking it more from a 
Keynesian uh, spending saving perspective, but I think we're talking about different sides of the same coin. Those that, that excess saving is there, and it's going to be put to work as the economy recovers. So we are facing over the next year or two, especially as Biden's Build Back Better doesn't get passed, uh, some t- uh, considerable tightening of fiscal policy relative to what it was in 2020 and 2021. That will be offset to some to considerable extent by households taking the the results of the past fiscal policy and spending it. And you're right, they're very liquid. There's no they don't have to sell houses. They don't have to sell buildings. They don't have to sell illiquid assets in order to do that spending. It's sitting there in the checking account. So I do think there's a there. It's indicative of some pent up demand that will be put to use. Um, over the next uh, year, a couple of years, and we'll boost spending. And I think that's that's one thinking about that and thinking about the effects on aggregate demand was an important reason for the Fed's pivot here. Right. You know, that, I, I agree with that. I think the fiscal policy, but that that money is out there. I mean, I think it's been used to I mean, why why are housing prices up 25 percent? I mean, why? I mean, and and we know what's happening to, to labor costs. The, the only reason labor costs are as quiet is because uh, white power workers get their three, four percent from last year. And they're kind of just losing to inflation when they renegotiate now. You know, especially with record profits of firms, you're going to start seeing five, six, seven percent wage increase. Of course, you've already seen 10 to 12, 15 percent wage increases at the lower end. Um, the Democrats are not even talking about 15 dollar minimum wage anymore, which was going to be a, a major Biden issue because you guess what? We're there. But it's, well, I think Jay Powell had Jay Powell was very clear at his press Tom, conference. You'll have that to admit, talking. you'd have to admit that. I mean, you say when we, re, I I think we're ninety percent to the full employment. First of all, I don't think we're getting labor labor participation back um, anywhere near. I mean, I, I, it's at least a million baby boomers that just decided, given the packages that they received, to retire. I mean, I just know tons of people they're not going back um i mean this this uh, you know and, and you know when you see uh you know jobless claims drop the 50 60 year old jo- job opening we can take a look at the jokes we can look at you can look at almost any indicator you've almost never seen a tighter labor market now contrast that with what happened after the great financial crisis how many years did it take us to get back. I mean, you, you know, oh, we slowly went down two tenths of a percent, one tenth of a percent every quarter in unemployment. We had jobless. It's like a totally different world. We, we're there. And well, I think, we got and I think, and Jeremy, I think, I think the Fed realizes that. I think that was a theme from the press conference of, of the other day. So Jay Powell said, we were disappointed that labor force participation hasn't come back as we thought it might. And that is that is constraining, constraining the supply of labor. And that's putting upward pressure on wages. And he was he was quite clear that they're watching this wage price interaction very carefully as one potential source of inflation pressure. 
Um, so I, I think they've got this stuff. You know, they're not as they're not convinced like you are that it's beyond saving. And, no, I'm not uh, saying I say beyond saving without looking at liquidity. I mean, I, 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 I listen. I'm not forecasting we're going to have that double-digit inflation like, you know, we had in the 70s or anything like that. Um, I've been for a year. When I saw this last year, I said we're going to have a cumulative 20 to 25 percent inflation spread over probably three years, with 7 percent a year for three years. I mean, I mean and people thought I was crazy. I mean, they, they said, oh, that's not going to happen. Um, and we'll see how much it happens. But I think given all that extra liquidity, all that look when I don't see any slowdown yet in that I, I I you know you know as well as I do that the the way the consumer price index puts in the uh, housing costs owners equivalent rent is way lagged rent rents are up ten to fifteen percent nationwide by every indicator um Housing prices are up 20 to 25. They're not going back down. And housing yet is 3 to 4% in the CPI. It's all going to be coming in the next 12 to 18 months, even if the other things go, go down. I mean, this is going to be protracted in the official statistics because if, if the actual rentals costs and housing costs, imputed rents, when in, I got, I was, I don't know who it was, who it was uh, computed this, that would be a 10.2% CPI increase in this year. Professor, no, I, let me, let me, let me ask you a quick question, because I know one of your views that I think is the most uh, out there also, you've talked about inverting the curve, like that through this cycle, you think the inversion of the curve is going to be more common. I'd like to get Don's comment to that. The professor last week said at the end of this cycle, we could get towards like 4% on Fed funds and like maybe a two, two and a half on the long end because of all, all the de demand for the long-term treasury. I'm curious if you think the Fed is going to worry about inverted curve. What's your, what's your thoughts on what he, what he's, his comments were there? So I, I don't think they'll worry about it. If that's, if that's what they think they need to do to control inflation, they'll do it. I mean, I think we got a, we got a very clear signal from the Fed and Chair Powell that their focus has shifted from their four or five million people who are the labor force is down and the employment is down by four or four or five million people short on employment to the inflation issue. So I think they'll tighten um, they'll tighten till they get that under control. And and the only and the only issue is how much do they do they need to tighten? I think an interesting question here is why don't the market share Professor Siegel's concerns about inflation? I mean, you don't see it. Why is the long bond, the, not the 10-year uh, at 1.5 or whatever in, in that neighborhood? And it's fluctuated around that for quite some time now. And even as the, as the markets build in higher short-term rates, if anything, those long-term rates haven't gone anywhere, maybe even come down a bit. So uh, the, I'm not saying the market's right. I'm not saying necessarily that Professor Siegel is wrong, but it is notable that the people betting money out there are betting that the Fed will control inflation and with 
not that big an increase in interest rates. They've got the terminal rate there at, what, 2% or something, lower than I think it might need to be, and much lower than Jeremy Siegel thinks it will need to be. <laughs> we, all, we also have to be careful of uh, interpreting, and, and, and that's why it's called the break-even rate of inflation, the difference between tips and nominal, which has remained, it started soaring, but started getting muted as it's not necessarily an unbiased estimate of future expectations of inflation, because a lot of people view the nominal bond. It's been a wonderful short-term hedge against stock risk, and they buy it as an insurance policy. Um, it's become uh, the negative beta asset of choice for a lot of portfolio managers, even though they say it's not a good investment. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, they're, they're, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, that's the unbiased estimate of inflation. I think it's an underestimate of what the inflation is, and it is over 10 years. As I say, I see this inflation going on for two to three and then going back down. So, you know, and if we take a look at the difference between the, the tips in the short run, you get a, a much higher inflation than you do when you look at the long run. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's a, that, that curve is inverted already, the inflation yeah. expected inflation curve. Um, but it's interesting. It's just interesting to me, and I don't fully understand it. And you put your finger on maybe some of the factors that embedded in the market is the expectation that interest rates will rise to about 2%, and that'll be enough to contain inflation. If I look at the five-year, five-year forward, as an, an estimate of the break-evens out there. I agree they're affected by liquidity, they're affected um, by special demands, but I think they're not completely divorced from uh, expectations of what the CPI will be, because that's what people are going to get paid for out there. Exactly. Professor, yeah. we're, we're running out of time on the top half of the show here. Any sort of closing thoughts as you think forward to next year? I know this could be a, a topic I'm sure we come back I'm to really week after week. This. I love this debate. Uh, Don, thanks for staying with me um, <laughs> on that um, and uh, you know, pushing some very good points on this. I, I think that the, I'm not saying it's the only thing they should look at, um, but I think that they should start looking at how much liquidity is in the economy. That's, that's just my point. point. Point well taken. Nice to talk to you again, Jeremy. Take we'll, care. we'll have you on maybe in uh, six months, and we'll talk about what's happening. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. We've been talking with Don Cohn, former Fed governor, now senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. We had Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.